Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. To stimulate the economy, the Obama administration is turning to green energy big time. What's happening here is we're building the world's largest wind turbine blade and structural testing facility. And without stimulus, my guess is this would be a parking lot. But paving the green road to recovery can be costly. Critics charge spending stimulus money on clean energy generates waste and fraud. Also, some students kick around bright ideas, their goal to shine a light on developing nations. There was this universal love of soccer around the world. And then we saw this huge need for electricity. And we said, hey, why not? Why not put the two together? And big trucks may soon need to go on diesel diets. We get a lesson from the national trucking champ on hauling freight the fuel-efficient way. Keep your eyes on the road and your ears tuned to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. When it comes to international environmental negotiations, there are good cops and bad cops. COP is UN-speak for Conference of the Parties, major summits where delegates gather to hammer out international treaties. Last December's COP in Copenhagen is an example of bad COP. Negotiators failed to come up with a binding agreement on climate change. For the past two weeks, delegates have been meeting in Nagoya, Japan, hoping for a good COP. The Conference of Parties is trying to come up with an agreement to save the world's biodiversity. Joining me from the summit to discuss good cop, bad cop is Thomas Lovejoy. He's the senior advisor to the president of the UN Foundation. Hi, Professor. Uh, Delighted to be with you. So have the negotiations in Nagoya been good cop or bad cop? Good meeting or bad meeting? So I think you get different opinions about that. There are those who will feel the targets should have been set higher. There will be those who are happy that it got as far as it did. All the negotiations were surrounded by just a fabulous amount of energetic, committed, far-looking activity. What are the targets? What are the the goals? So the whole set of goals about how a nation can access the benefits of another nation's biodiversity. Think of a potential cancer drug in the middle of, say, uh, the Congo rainforest. You know, what are the rules around that? And then the other targets are, in many ways, the most important ones, uh, the ones that guarantee those benefits will still be there to be accessed and shared. And that revolves around how much of the planet is under some strict form of protection, whether on, on the land or in the oceans. The idea that the benefits are there and they're going to be sustainable and shareable presumes that we can keep biodiversity as diverse as it is. Uh, precisely. And, and, you know, sometimes watching the negotiations, you wondered whether people realized that, you know, is he going to take forever to negotiate the access terms, then there's just going to be fewer benefits to be accessed and shared. I heard that we are losing more species today than have ever been lost uh, since the time of the dinosaurs. That's true. And it's certainly true in the history of our own species. So the last time there was a 
a massive extinction on Earth. It was when the dinosaurs exited. If we keep on the trends that we're on, uh, we'll be basically creating the same kind of scenario. Now, there are people, and I've, I've met them. I've been to the Amazon, for example, and, and the indigenous people who have lived in, in these biologically rich zones, and they use things that I've never seen and, and scientists have never seen, and they have tremendous value. Uh, I mean, it's extraordinary what indigenous peoples uh, are able to use from nature. And, and, you know, we already use some of those things like curare, which we use as a muscle relaxant in major abdominal surgery. So the real issue is how do you actually recognize the right to that knowledge that the indigenous people have so they get some economic return as benefit. And there's a lot of worry in the world, particularly in the developing countries, that really smart corporate scientists or others are going to swoop in and snatch up the knowledge and run off and make a lot of money, and there will be no return for the indigenous people. And that's called biopiracy. The reality is that there are very few real examples of biopiracy, and in the end, the real biopiracy is the people who are destroying biodiversity and making it impossible for those benefits ever to be accessed or shared. Well, how do you monetize the value of biodiversity? It's not so much monetizing as valuing. New York City, a few years back, is a great example of this. The watershed, which produced, uh, when I was a kid, water that was so good that you just noticed when you took a drink of water right out of the tap, had deteriorated the watershed to a point where the EPA was going to require the city to cough up $8 billion to build a water treatment plant. And then somebody got smart and said, you know, I bet you if we restored this watershed and restored the biodiversity, uh, we could do it as a permanent solution for much less cost. And that is precisely what happened. So the environment has, has value that's not readily apparent, except when we really need it. Well, that's right, or, or when you begin to pull the rug out of it. And there's a wonderful phrase that uh, I heard at the COP, uh, which is, humanity does best where nature flourishes. You know, We've done the experiment that shows what happens when you don't do that, and it's called Haiti. That's what happens when you strip the biology out of a country. Now, this is the COP10. So you've had 10 of these going back 20 years. And only now are they, are they dealing with this stuff substantially, it seems to me. I think what's driving it today is a greater sense of urgency uh, than before because people can see a lot of this biodiversity beginning to slip away. That finally makes you focus and spend less time negotiating and more time thinking about how to actually protect the biology of the planet and, indeed, the human future. Thomas Lovejoy is a professor of environmental science and policy at George Mason University. President Obama tried to jumpstart the economy by putting federal stimulus money into alternative energy projects. The funds certainly made solar power's prospects brighter, 
$2 billion in federal loan guarantees have helped launch the world's largest solar project in California's Mojave Desert. It's just one of thousands of clean energy and efficiency projects boosted by the Recovery Act stimulus money. But critics, backed by a federal investigation, say some of the projects also generate waste and fraud. Living on Earth's Jeff Young has a progress report on the government's attempt to stimulate a clean energy economy. The shadow hanging over solar power has always been cost. It's too pricey to compete with dirtier sources like coal. A small startup in Lexington, Massachusetts, that cradle of American revolution, is working on a manufacturing solution. Frank Van Mierlo is CEO of 1366 Technologies. He shows me a block of pure silicon and part of the price problem, sawing the silicon wafers that become solar cells. You can imagine that if you saw this, that you create about as much sawdust as, uh, as you have left in the wafer. And that's exactly what happens. You waste half of the silicon in sawdust. And what's worse, the cost of sawing is very costly. The 1366 lab is perfecting a process to pull thin wafers directly from molten silicon. Van Mierlo says it could cut the cost of the wafers 80%. That is significant because the wafer is more than half of the final module cost. And by dramatically reducing that cost, we really are making a genuine step towards making solar cheaper than the cost of coal. The wind industry wants to harness ocean breezes to power east coast cities, but no one's sure how offshore turbines will stand up in harsh ocean winds. Rahul Yurala says this structure going up in Boston will put those blades to the test. What's happening here is we're building the world's largest wind turbine blade and structural testing facility. Yurala directs the Massachusetts Wind Technology Testing Center. The 130-foot-long structure will vibrate, twist, and otherwise punish the biggest turbine blades, making sure they're seaworthy. Both these companies have one thing in common the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009, better known as the Stimulus Act. The solar startup in Lexington got $4 million, and Urala says $25 million stimulus dollars rescued the wind test facility from financial meltdown. And without stimulus, my guess is this would be a parking lot. Advocates say the stimulus was the single biggest clean energy investment the country has ever made. Kate Gordon at the Democratic-leaning think tank Center for American Progress puts it at a little more than $80 billion. That was across a range of things, you know, tax credits and grants for renewable energy development, a big program for energy efficiency for low-income houses, some infrastructure projects like smart grid and the transmission lines was fairly comprehensive from a clean energy perspective. Gordon says it's too soon to fully assess that investment. But a recent analysis shows results from one stimulus program that put some $5 billion toward renewable energy. That program has been extremely successful. The American Wind Energy Association anticipates that that program saved about 40,000 jobs in the wind industry that otherwise just would have gone away because the projects would have all died. That study included indirect jobs associated with the spending. But any way you look at it, Gordon says, the impact was big. Stimulus money made possible about 60 percent of all the new wind projects in the country last year. Critics of the Stimulus Act question whether that's worth billions of taxpayer dollars. Leslie Page is with the fiscally conservative watchdog group Citizens Against Government Waste. You can always throw $862 billion at a problem and say that you created jobs. The question is, is what kind of jobs were they and at what cost? Page says the most waste, ironically, came in an efficiency program. 
home weatherization. Some weatherization programs saw a 1,000% budget increase. Page points to a recent report from the Energy Department's own Inspector General. In Illinois, the IG found shoddy work, poor inspection, and overbilling. The program was, even before the stimulus, vulnerable to waste, fraud, and abuse. And we were very, very concerned that by shoving even more money, $5 billion, into the same program with no oversight, that you were going to run into some serious problems. And the audits that we're seeing now are actually bearing out that prediction. Similar issues arose for Texas, Wisconsin, and Virginia. The Department of Energy says those problems are being addressed. Kathy Zoy is the DOE's Assistant Secretary for Efficiency and Renewable Energy. We're now weatherizing 25,000 homes or so a month. The scale of this effort is huge. It is almost inevitable that some people are going to not do the work the right way the first time, but we have systems in place to ensure that anything that's not done well gets fixed. Reports on wasteful weatherization projects and wind power jobs quickly entered the election year dispute over the stimulus. But those putting stimulus money to work urge a different perspective. Rahul Urala invites people to come see the hundreds of construction workers putting up the wind testing lab and consider what it could mean beyond the election cycle. I'm an engineer, so I got to stick to my project, construction jobs for one year, and it's leaving behind the world's best lab. I don't see where the wastage is. The Stimulus Act's effect on the country's energy economy will be stimulating debate for years to come. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Boston. Just ahead, a national truck driving champ keeps on trucking three million miles and more efficiently. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Within a few years, medium and heavy-duty trucks in the United States could be rolling down highways and byways using a lot less fuel and emitting a lot less greenhouse gases. The EPA and Department of Transportation have proposed new standards set to go in effect in three years, If the new regs are adopted, the agency's estimate the new fleet of fuel-efficient trucks will provide more than $40 billion in benefits over the lifetime of the vehicles. However, to get those savings will take a hefty dose of high-tech, expensive new engine designs, drivetrains, and streamlined aerodynamics. But according to a recent study by the National Research Council, there's a lot truckers can do right now to cut fuel consumption and curb tailpipe emissions at little or no cost. When it comes to driving efficiently, Carl Kreitz is what you might call the MVP of MPGs. He's a trucker with Conway Freight in Ohio and this year's National Truck Driving Champion. Mr. Kreitz, congratulations. Welcome to Living on Earth. It's quite a pleasure. You've been driving for, what, 31 years? 32 as of the 1st of September. I guess over the years you've put on a few miles in your time. Uh, right at 3 million miles without a chargeable accident. Ooh, that's a good record. What kind of truck do you drive? Uh, right now I work for Conway Freight, and we pull doubles. We haul LTL freight. 18-wheeler, I guess? Yes, sir. So do you have special techniques that you use to save gas? My biggest thing is, and especially with Conway Freight, we're real conscious about fuel economy and stuff. Our trucks are all governed at 62 miles an hour. And they've, you know, put out the numbers as to how much fuel we save going from 62 instead of 65. And that itself is astronomical money savings in our fleet. And not only that, but just the fuel savings. Yeah, I guess I was reading that you go from 70 miles to 65, you save 8% right off the top. Exactly. You know, I, I get called a dogger because I set my cruise at 60. To me, a two-mile-an-hour isn't going to make that much difference, but yet you save a little more fuel. 
A dogger? Is that what they call you? They call me, yeah, they call me dogging it. <laughs> <laughs> so if you have an 18-wheel, you got a lot of tires there. Uh, I know you're supposed to keep your tires inflated. Do you keep your tires inflated? Yeah, we do a pre-trip inspection, and then our units are PM maintenance regularly. And um, I do a thump test every morning, you know, just to make sure I don't have a low tire or something, because that does make a big difference. You know, I had a guy explain to me the amount of fuel savings you can get just from uh, keeping your tires inflated right. People just don't realize it. What about the shifts? How many gears do you have? I got a 10-speed. 10-speed. How do you make sure you're in the exact right gear? Because I was reading that if you shift one gear down, you can increase your fuel consumption by 15%. Right. You know, RPM range for mine is like around 1250. And um, I usually run right at around 1100 RPMs and stuff, just a little below max. I like to have something in reserve in case you need a little extra throttle to get out of a situation or something like that. You don't want to be maxed out. Do you do double clutching with 10 gears? I would guess you'd have to sometimes. <laughs> uh, to be totally honest, I use a clutch when I stop and start, and uh, otherwise I just use synchronized shifting. You're kidding. You just push it in. Never touch the clutch once I pull away from a stop sign or stoplight. Does that save you gas? Yes. Saves you foot power. It saves wear and tear on the clutch. And the modern transmissions are so synchronized that if you use your uh, RPM range like it's recommended, it's synchronized so well that it just falls right out and right into the next gear. What about pit stops? I, I was reading that if you consolidate your, your stops for food and fuel and so on, you could really save quite a bit of gas. I guess a third of a gallon of gas is used by truckers just to return to a highway speed. Right. And also, you know what a lot of guys don't realize, if you idle your truck for one hour, you burn a gallon of fuel. I understand why Conway would do it. They're, they're saving a, a lot of money you know, on gas and fuel. Absolutely. We run 4,400 line haul, what we call line haul, runs every night across the United States and Canada. And if you can save 2% of fuel on each unit at 4,400 units running up and down the highway at night, you're saving a lot of money and you're saving a lot of fuel. Are there other drivers who are as conscientious as you at Conway in terms of the fuel efficiency? Uh, yeah. Actually, there are. There's some of the old school guys that, you know, haven't really caught on to it yet. But there's several of us that have, you know, you look at it, and the thing with us is, and, and maybe this is a little self-centered, <laughs> we do a profit sharing at the end of the year. So anything we can do to help save money for our company, you know, is a big bonus for us. And not only that, but it's just the wear and tear on the vehicle's less if you're conscious. Because when you're trying to be fuel efficient and save fuel, you're driving in a better manner all the way around. And the biggest thing to me is, like, we reduce our reliance on, on foreign oil and, uh, you know, the safety factor, you know, and the reputation of the drivers overall through a period there for a time where the reputation of a truck driver wasn't real good. But now the positive light, I know the numbers are out, and, and you know, over 80% of the American public has a positive attitude towards truck drivers because they've realized that it's not just a job anymore, it's a profession, and we take pride in what we do. You know, it's no different than a doctor going to work and doing his job and taking pride in what he does, you know. We all try to do that. So how long do you plan to drive? <laughs> my, goal, my goal is 58, and that's eight years from now. I just turned 50 this year. I'd like to get the 4 million miles. Do truckers still use CB radios? Oh, yeah. Yep. So what's your handle? <laughs> uh, my handle is Skeeter. 
Skeeter. Yes, sir. And I've had that since I was very small. My grandfather always told me I buzzed around like a blank Skeeter, and uh, the name just stuck. I guess I could never sit still. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Skeeter, 10-4. Well, thank you, Bruce. It's been a pleasure and uh, quite an honor. Carl Skeeter-Kreitz is the 2010 National Truck Driving Grand Champion. He drives with Conway in Ohio. How do you save fuel? Let us know, and if we pick your idea and put it on the air, we'll send you a shiny blue Living on Earth tire gauge. Email us at comments at LOE.org. That's comments at LOE.org. Or post your idea on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. National parks are peaceful places where people go to reflect on the beauty and wonderment of nature. The United States is blessed with 58 national parks, but Afghanistan, which can sure use the peace and tranquility, has only one. It was founded in a war zone on Earth Day 2009. Living on Earth's Mitrataj reports on Bandimir National Park and the woman who helped establish it. People who have traveled to Bandimir describe their visits as surreal. A bumpy drive into the heart of a torn country, past abandoned tanks and valleys of uncleared landmines, and in the middle of the desert, tucked into jagged mountains, a sudden blue beauty. Six lakes, as bright as the sky above, spill water over twisting limestone formations. Bande Amir, in the province of Bamiyan, is Afghanistan's first and only national park, and represents the vision of the country's first and only woman governor, Habiba Sarabi. We have very beautiful lakes in Bamiyan, crystal blue lakes, supposed to be announced as a national park during the 60s, but unfortunately due to war and conflict in Afghanistan, we were not able to do it. Not until last year, when the park was finally announced. Sarabi is short and unassuming. She wears a light-colored headscarf and a gentle smile. She's a hematologist, and during the Taliban years, she lived with her children in Pakistan, secretly teaching Afghan girls. While she was away, the Taliban destroyed Bamiyan's famous stone Buddha statues, and the huge gaping holes where they once stood now watch the road to Bandamir National Park. Sarabi supports rebuilding the icons, and her efforts to revive the province recently earned her an invitation to Washington, D.C. to meet with other women conservationists. Governor Sarabi is an inspiration to everyone. Kelly Aylward works for the Wildlife Conservation Society and spent a week with Sarabi while she was here. I think she saw the National Park as a natural benefit for the people in her province and the potential for the long term for the entire country. When I met her, I was taken by her strong conviction and her fairly small voice. Governor Sarabi uses her small voice to sing the praises of the province she governs and to try to turn its treasures into a foundation for growth. We should think about the sustainable economic development. So our vision is to promote ecotourism in this province, but ecotourism cannot be promoted without conservation. Ecotourism means that to respect the culture, to respect the nature, to respect the heritage, and with that, we have to bring responsible tourism in Bamiyan. Surprisingly, Sarabi's province is safe for tourism, relatively calm and peaceful. Sarabi complains that other provinces, battlegrounds for Taliban and NATO control, attract most of the attention and most of the development funds. 
So as the current war rages toward its 10th year, Sarabi is quietly working to build a future for one of the most underdeveloped places in the country. Bamiyan is poor. Bamiyan is poor. Amir Folari runs the Bamiyan Ecotourism Program. More than 85% of the income is through agriculture. But because of the harsh winter, they cannot harvest two times a year, just once a year. Fulati says the same rugged environment that allows farmers to reap just one harvest a year can support tourism year-round. Bamiyan has a very rich cultural and natural heritage, like the Buddha niches, the caves with mural paintings, and the Ajar Valley, the hunting place for the last king. Koibaba Mountains, with lakes at the top of the mountains, and there is trekking for the summer and skiing in the winter, and the local culture and traditions are also very attractive for tourists. Folari and his colleagues have already trained 20 tour guides to work at Bandamir and hope to hire many more. They're also helping locals set up guest homes and writing a guidebook for the area. Already one project, the Silk Road Festival in the summer, has turned into a success, drawing 7,000 tourists last year, a thousand more than the year before. Most were Afghans, and figuring out how to bring foreign tourists through the chaos of the rest of the country and into Bamiyan is still a challenge. In, I, hope in two, three years, I hope in two to three years we will have better security in the country and good access to Bamiyan, so we will have many tourists. But ecotourism isn't the only potential answer to Bamiyan's poverty. In June of this year, the U.S. Geological Survey released a stunning report. Bamiyan is sitting on a trillion dollars worth of iron ore. Afghanistan's mining minister is now considering bids from mining companies. Governor Sarabi welcomes all economic development, but prays it will be done carefully. This mine shouldn't destroy the environment. The only concern uh, for us is the environment. For Living on Earth, I'm Itra Taj in Washington. A group of Harvard students is harnessing the power of the world's most popular sport. They've built a soccer ball that charges with every kick, and post-game can power a light. Popular Mechanics calls the ball one of the breakthrough innovations of the year. The creators call it the socket. Living on Earth's and Planet Harmony's Ike Triskandaraja has our story. A group of four Harvard students is trying to tackle the problem of being off the grid with a solution on the field. Hamali Takar, a graduating senior, is one of the co-creators of Socket. This is a Socket. It's a soccer ball with the ability to generate electricity. Takar holds up what, on the outside, looks like a regular white soccer ball. But inside... Every time you kick the ball, there's a magnet that goes back and forth through the inductive coil, which allows a current to be captured in, uh, in a capacitor, and that electricity can be stored and used later on. Similar to a shake-to-charge flashlight... Shake-to-charge flashlight is the one where you, you shake it, and the more you shake it, the more light you have. So right now, uh, you need about 15 minutes of kicking the ball that allows us to use a single LED. It'll be lit for about three hours. And so let me um, take you over to where the lamp is. So right now, as you would use it, you would plug the lamp directly into the input that's on the ball. Voila! You can see the light. (laughs) A glowing reading light connects to a wire that ends in a DC plug sticking out of the ball. You know, when it's pitch dark, it's... Amazing how, like, a single LED can make such a big difference. 
Making a difference was the goal of Takara and her three co-creators. The four of them, all women, non-engineers, had a class assignment to design a project that tackled a global social problem. And we saw that there was this universal love of soccer around the world. And then we saw this huge need for electricity. And we said, hey, why not? Why not put the two together? And that's how Socket came about. Soccer is often played in poor places. And the UN Development Program estimates that nearly 80% of the third world, the 50 poorest nations, has no access to electricity. And in those places, people rely on unsustainable, unhealthy energy sources. And what the problem is, is right now in developing countries, is that a lot of people use kerosene. Kerosene lamps um, cause these fumes that are really bad every time you inhale them. So it causes respiratory illnesses, and um, those are supposed to be you know, one of the biggest causes of, of morbidity and mortality in developing countries. Over one and a half billion people worldwide use kerosene to light their homes. Respiratory infections account for the largest percentage of childhood deaths in developing nations. The environmental impact of kerosene is severe as well. The yearly carbon dioxide emissions from all those lamps around the world equals the emissions from about 38 million cars. The Harvard team passed their ball off to a design firm to give shape to their idea. And this past summer, the Socket team took their prototype to test it where the need for clean electricity and love of soccer was the highest. We were able to take, you know, 10 to 20 sockets to the World Cup. And it was in South Africa, which was the best place to be able to test sockets. The home of the 2010 World Cup gave the socket inventors a great opportunity to see how their ball fared on some well-tread, no-frill South African fields. The young women worked with Marcus McGilvray, founder of the South African-based Wiz Kids United. He runs a HIV care and prevention organization that uses soccer to reach at-risk kids. McGilvray had first met one of the Harvard inventors a year earlier and introduced her to his crack team of product testers. These children often, you know, they make footballs out of carrier bags and rolled up newspaper. So they're always very excited when they have the opportunity to play with a football. And then, of course, this football generated a lot of interest. I asked him how the ball held up against his soccer-crazed kids. The ball stood up to the conditions, and it held out really well. But McGilvray also says there's some room for improvement. Certainly we could see that they were charging. What the socket team realized was, though, from the trial, is that they were going to have to go back and actually work on the connection inside. So the Harvard Socketeers took these suggestions back and are hoping to have a new version of the ball on shelves next summer. Proceeds from American sales would support a buy-one-give-one model, so groups like WizKids in South Africa could start including the balls in their own programs, teaching soccer and life skills. Soccer really gives it a whole new dimension to be able to show them what innovative inventions are coming up around the world. You know, it gets young people to think, wow... You know, I, I think these, these are great things for children to learn from. A ball that powers an LED won't end poverty or fix the environment, but it may inspire kids to think about other simple solutions to big problems and help people breathe a little easier. For Living on Earth and Planet Harmony, I'm Mike Sriskandaraja. For more on the electrifying soccer ball, visit myplanetharmony.com. 
Our sister program, Planet Harmony, welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. Coming up, recalling some of the major battles of the environmental movement fought by the Natural Resources Defense Council. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The 1960s and early 70s were a time of great social upheaval and environmental activism. It's when John Adams helped found the Natural Resources Defense Council. Well, the mood was in the air for change. People were worried about the war and they were working on civil rights issues. And the environment seemed to be a burgeoning issue led by books by Rachel Carson, the burning of the Cuyahoga River, the oil spill out in Santa Barbara, and the Storm King case. Storm King Mountain, with its iconic view of the Hudson River, was threatened by plans to build a power plant. In a landmark court case, a conservation group was permitted to sue on behalf of the public interest, and Storm King Mountain was protected. That success was one of the first for what has become one of the nation's most powerful environmental action groups. The NRDC, or the Natural Resources Defense Council, was founded in 1970. NRDC's first executive director was a young lawyer named John Adams. Over the span of the next four decades, the NRDC has been at the forefront of many of the most important environmental battles, which Adams chronicles in his new book, A Force for Nature. LOE's Steve Kerwood got John Adams to tell some of those stories. Now, what did you initially hope to accomplish with NRDC? Well, the first thing we wanted to do was to help establish the laws that were needed to protect the environment, laws like the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, Toxic Substances Control Act. Remember that in 1969, there were no environmental laws. The laws were written in 1970 and that next in the decade, that uh, the years that followed. And uh, we wanted to be there for the writing of those laws so they were strong. And then to work on the regulations that followed so that they could be enforceable and we could really accomplish something with them. Let's get your history right here. I mean, you were a cop before you started working for the creation of the NRDC. By a cop, I mean you were a prosecutor enforcing the law. That's right. I was, for almost five years, an assistant U.S. attorney working for Robert Morgenthau. I would say I was getting an education. Uh, We were trained how to litigate, uh, how to make decisions, how to work on public policy issues, and really learn how to get a strong backbone at a young age. And so the way you tell the story, it sounds like the NRDC was set up to be the cop of the EPA. Well, there's no doubt that we were set up to protect citizens, the citizens uh, who cared about the environment. My belief is that NRDC's strength is that we represent people out across this country who care about the environment, and we will bring actions on their behalf to make sure that that environment that they care about is protected. 
Now, one of the first cases that you take on in a big way is that you sue the nation's largest electric utility, the Tennessee Valley Authority, a federal authority. What was that case about and what did you accomplish? The case was about strip mining and we were after a big quasi-governmental company because they were a a huge uh, user of coal and we wanted to force them to clean up their act and stop the strip mining of eastern Kentucky and into West Virginia and Tennessee. And uh, we won an initial victory, but ultimately we lost. And what we learned from that battle is that coal is a very difficult customer. And we have been engaged in the coal issues for really three decades, um, most recently on mountaintop removal. John Adams, back in 1989, you and the NRDC released a report on pesticides and other agricultural chemicals called Intolerable Risk, and you initially focused on the chemical used on apples known as ALAR. Can you tell me that story, please? There were several of our NRDC people who were married with little children, and uh, one was Robin Wyatt. She was worried about uh, what her little children were eating. She was studying the amount of food and the amount of pesticides that gets into food. And uh, particularly, she focused on alar because uh, her children were drinking a lot of apple juice. And alar, a known carcinogen, was on a lot of apples. And uh, the standard for measuring apples and the carcinogen was based on a 160-pound man and Her child was some 28 pounds. And uh, so they did a market basket study of food that came into households. The apples particularly came up with very high levels of uh, uh, that exceeded uh, the illegal uh, limit. So uh, we went public and then we issued a report. 60 Minutes did a program and... uh, Ultimately, uh, a real big bang happened out there. There was a lot of uh, charges and countercharges that we were uh, trying to scare people, and they really went after us. But, you know, ultimately, Uniroyal withdrew Alar from the market, and a lawsuit that had been brought by the apple growers against NRDC was dismissed. Uh, the Alar case led to the, really the beginning of the great new food Uh, movement in this country of food free of chemicals and pesticides. I think one of the most interesting stories about the NRDC that I found in your book is the story you tell about NRDC's role in verifying the test ban treaty with the United States and the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, and you ended up working with the KGB. Oh, it's a great story. It's the story of a great person, Tom Cochran who's a physicist with NRDC, and he was approached by people from the Soviet Union at a meeting, presumably KGB, and he was told that the Soviet Academy of Science, uh, run by a man named uh, Velikov, was interested in seeing whether or not there could be something done on on a test ban treaty, uh, particularly with verification using seismometers. And uh, I don't imagine the KGB actually told you that they were in this operation. No, but we knew they were. Uh, We were traveling with Henry Breck, a banker here in New York who came on the trip, and he was a former CIA employee. And 
uh, he uh, set up a couple of his own traps around his briefcase and found that they were being disturbed. When uh, Tom called me about this opportunity, I said, Tom, this is really very important. Every time you're contacted by anybody, make a file record and send the copy of it to the FBI. Did the FBI follow you around when you were dealing with these KGB Well, that's, that's interesting. I don't know, but I do know the KGB followed us everywhere. <laughs> you know, then we became friends with several of the, the people, and uh, they told us that they could not have done the work they were doing if they were not a part of the apparatus. Why was it so important that NRDC provide this material to verify the presence of nuclear explosions? The United States didn't trust the Soviet Union. And that was it, pure and simple. The president didn't trust them. And so a trip was arranged to Moscow, and Tom presented his plan about bringing over to the Soviet Union seismometers and the scientists that worked in this area to set up a system to test whether or not an underground test could be verified by the use of seismometers. Theoretically, you could tell the difference between an an explosion with dynamite or a nuclear explosion or an earthquake or even an industrial explosion. And we signed an agreement with uh, Velikov and the Soviet Academy, and off we went, and they drilled holes in the mountain uh, in Tajikistan and several other places to set up these seismometers. They set off the explosion, and that test... And the continued use of seismometers in the Soviet Union helped to bring President Reagan and the administration into an agreement with them on the verification. So with this equipment in place provided by the NRDC, the United States and the Soviet Union were able to execute a test ban treaty? It became the basis for it, yes. So why didn't you guys get the Nobel Peace Prize? You know, I've often wondered why Tom Cochran didn't get a major prize for this work, but... You know, we were a small organization, and uh, we were only growing into our size, and uh, maybe if it had happened this year, we would have. But maybe someday he'll be recognized for it the way he deserves. So, John Adams, 40 years after you gave up that nice, secure job at the U.S. Attorney's Office to go with the fledgling Natural Resources Defense Council, what would you say is the most important thing you've learned? Well, the most important thing is to have a great wife, who's the co-author of this book, As for my view of what is absolutely the single most important thing is, we have created an organization that allows the public to participate in decision-making. And we challenge the government, we challenge the companies, and we represent the environmental positions on the environment and on health. And we think that's a very, very important role that could well have been overlooked. John Adams is the co-author of A Force for Nature, the story of NRDC and the fight to save our planet. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you very much for doing this. John Adams, founding director of the NRDC, spoke with Living on Earth's Steve Kerwood. In just a minute, a farmer gives his hoe the heave-ho and raises an axe to scare up some Halloween profits. But first, this cool fix for a hot planet from Hannah Lyles.
These days, it seems like wikis, the open-source collaborative websites, are sprouting up everywhere. There's a wiki for quotes, a wiki for travel, a wiki for Star Wars, and now there's a wiki for trees. The Urban Forest Map Wiki relies on community members to document every single tree in the San Francisco area. A tree survey typically costs about $3 a tree, and in a city with hundreds of thousands of trees, that adds up quickly. But with the Urban Forest Map, community volunteers record and update data, which cuts costs and leads to accurate and current information. On the site, every tree has a profile page listing information including location, species, and size. Based on those specifics, the amount of carbon dioxide and air pollutants removed from the air by each tree is also listed. This treasure trove of data helps city officials and community organizers manage and protect urban tree populations and allows scientists to study the relationship between urban forests and climate. Supporters of the project are hoping that this new type of wiki will put down roots in other cities across the country. That's this week's Cool Fix for a Hot Planet. I'm Hannah Lyles. What's happening to the nation's family farms is frightening. While they make up 98% of the U.S. farms, they're responsible for just 15% of production. And here's the really scary part. Nearly half of the families down on the farm don't turn a profit. So a growing number are resurrecting their plots and turning them into... Haunted Attractions. Come the harvest moon, thousands of family farmers in the United States become pumpkin sellers, maze makers, and purveyors of fear as they try to scare up money from fallow fields. Glenn Boyett's farm in Clayton, North Carolina, has been in the family for generations. This time of year, he turns it into the Clayton Fear Farm. It was my grandfather's, and you know, he passed it down to one of my uncles. Then my wife and I purchased his estate. You know, we're in the uh, produce business. This year, we concentrated on sweet corn and watermelons. Labor was getting extremely hard to come by, and we were looking for an an alternative method of uh, getting some revenue on the farm. And I attended a haunted house convention that was in Charlotte, North Carolina, HauntCon. A haunted house convention? Did you meet a lot of people who in their past lives were family farmers? A bunch. I knew absolutely nothing about the haunted house industry. And after that, we visited several other farms all over the country, picked up ideas and brought them back here and turned it into uh, our theme. Well, it's called Clayton Fear Farm, and it's a Halloween haunted house or Halloween haunted theme park. And we just grew from there. But how long has Fear been running in the, the Clayton family farm? This is our ninth season. We're uh, fixing to enter into the slaughterhouse. That was the bull that's going crazy that's about to uh, meet, his, meet his fate. One of the most rewarding things in this industry when uh, a young lady comes out, out of one of my houses and she has to wrap her sweater around her waist. You know, Mr. Boy, you sound like a real prankster. <laughs> well, I don't know where to thank you or not. <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 you like scaring the pants off of people, don't you? Yes, sir. Absolutely. No, I mean, where else, where else in the world can you mess with people and get paid for it? <laughs> that was the sound of the dog you just heard as an animatronic, and after the dog starts to bark, and that gives, sets up a perfect situation for the actor 
to come charging out and scare the people out of the house. You have a, a no chicken refund policy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so if people get too scared, they don't get their, their money back. That has happened, absolutely. We've had some people get mad because we scared their partner. You know, hey, that's what we do. How, how many people do you have coming through the, the through your uh, fear farm? We're running somewhere between fifteen and 20,000. 15 or 20,000 people? That's correct. And, and the season lasts like, what, a month, right? We're open 17 nights. Whoa, you are raking it in. <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> it takes a lot to put on this show. Do you miss farming at all? We're not out of touch with farming. You know, we do enough of it to keep our hands dirty and down to the grassroots, you know. Without a doubt, it's a lot of hard work. But so is running the haunted house business a lot of hard work. And I'm very happy with what I'm doing right now. Glenn Boyd runs the Clayton Fear Farm in Clayton, North Carolina. I'm back and says again. On the next Living on Earth, California is committed to climate action, but some say capping carbon will cost jobs. This is suicide. There's never been a groundswell of support from the people saying, yeah, we want to sacrifice a million jobs for a theoretical reduction in carbon dioxide emission when nobody else on the planet is doing this. Californians vote on rolling back climate change law. We tally the results next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week with a haunting howl. The timber wolf, also known as the gray wolf, is the largest wild member of the dog family. The wolf can grow to four feet long. It hunts in packs, mostly at night, and can be found in about a dozen states. The wolves were removed from the endangered species list in 2009, but have since been reinstated as a federally protected species. Brian Wright recorded the cries of this lone wolf on the CD, Timber Wolf in the Tall Pines. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Valinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Lee Smith, Ike Shreeskandaraja, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins, Sammy Sousa, and Emily Guerin. Our interns are Nora Doyle Burr and Hannah Lyles. We had engineering help this week from Dana Chisholm. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. And PAX World Mutual Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. 
on the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.